This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Genre shifting your players. Thomas Miller Beach. The unfilled mythos god slot. And David Lean's Nostromo. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of... Hold on. That's not Peter Frampton. That's Blackpink coming alive. Uh, And in addition to our Doritos, we also have delicious kimchi robin Ooh, and hey hey can you get those uh peanuts with like the breaded coating and the chicken flavoring on them oh yeah we can yeah we can thanks to beloved patreon backer terry robinson who has requested a korea philic version of the gaming hut when he asks ken and robin seem to enjoy the sudden genre shifts that are a hallmark of Korean cinema. How do we add that to the game table without either ruining the surprise or annoying the players? Are there systems that take this pivot well? Genre emulation and generality feel like they're at opposite ends of some sort of axis. Okay, well, first of all, I'm going to completely ignore the attempt to slide another axis. Yeah, <laughs> nice try, Terry. Yeah, but remain in denial about that one and uh, move on. Let's start with a general genre shifting observation is that Korean cinema, I think, inherits its genre shifting, which I think is even more present in its television world than in movies from the classic Hong Kong films of the uh, late 80s and early 90s, which can sweep on a dime from low comedy to violent action to uh, sincere melodrama. But once you get to the game table, you're dealing, I think, with the 
tonal expectations of the players, who are probably steeped for most of our listeners more in English language entertainment. And I guess I would start, once we're talking about gaming, with the observation that the players can both be fiercest defenders of the tone that they thought they signed up for, and Mm -hmm. also the biggest disruptors to that tone and to other genre expectations. And it may be the player who sends things spiraling into another uh, emotional tone or uh, introduces, you know, Wolverine claws to a situation that everybody else thought they were they were going somewhere else. So it is very tricky because it is about, it's hard enough to know what player expectations are when you're just trying to stick to one tone, let alone know how much they are up for a, a sudden curveball. And so I think really the only way to, to do that is to, not tell them exactly what you're planning to do, but to say, there's going to be a curveball. And that's moving them a bit out of the uh, audience space of being a player and into the author space of being a player. And I guess maybe the implicit question then is, do you want a curveball? Because it's often hard enough to sell people on the thing your game seems to be, let alone uh, have it turn out to be something else entirely. I guess the classic example there is the the something else that turns out to be a horror thing, right? It's like, yeah, it seems to be Jane Austen and, and then the mutants show up. Yeah. The, um, generally in play. And I find this is basically true in my own gaming players or the table. Uh, cause I would include the GM can handle one shift and then sometimes they can shift back and forth. So you can have a game and I would, uh, you know, highlight, say, Vampire, where the game shifts quite drastically within its box between a, you know, strong melodrama, a, a story of, of strong emotion. And I don't mean melodrama in a, you know, a condescending way. I'm, it's just pure description that a game where emotions of the players or the characters rather are the driving factor. They're the most important thing on the table. And then that switches to one or another kind of horror. And those switches go all the way back to the beginning of Gothic literature. So I think that that switch seems to be one that is, you know, it may not be the best switch, but it is certainly the most oiled and best used switch in English language entertainment, as you talk about. And I think that players can generally handle one switch that happens within a a box if they can sort of see the point of it. So if you were running a a Duma game, I feel like certainly my players could handle a switch from romance to sword fighting without feeling a a real wrench in the middle of it. And I I feel like most groups that have played enough to be able to sort of mentally police genre on their own anyway. So, you know, if you, once you've gotten past the barrier peaks excitement of laser guns and battle axes, oh my Lord, <laughs> then I think that most tables can handle one or another switch. It's the, it's the sort of the continuing it around the track that uh, you add, you know, comedy or you add uh, existential angst or you add some other tonal quality. And it's not just a matter of genre signifiers, because I think everyone can handle why that elf is actually an alien. Dun, dun, dun. And, you know, that's good fun. No one doesn't like that. But to go from a sort of a fantasy mindset in which the world is full of magic and you have a degree of personal command over it to a science fiction mindset where there is no magic, 
And you can only gain control over the world through technical intermediation, not from personal action, although psionics, of course, as they always do, muddy the waters. But I feel like the trappings of genre are easily switched out by by players. And that goes back to that Barrier Peaks fun. But I feel like the the tonal qualities, the emotions of genre are harder to uh, keep in their channels, especially once you've switched between them two or three times. And then someone says, well, we were doing comedy two scenes ago. Why isn't it funny now? And the answer is because now's the horror time and you're ruining it for everyone. Or now's the romance time and you're ruining it for everyone. And that is the hard part is once you've switched twice, deciding as a group when it's cool to switch, when it's not cool to switch, how do you control that? that rhythm more even than the actual act of switching. Right. Right. And the thing about any narrative curveball, a genre shift included is that the thing you shift to has to be more appealing to the, uh, in this case, players than the previous thing. And so the danger is if you let the phase one go on for too long, or if players become too invested in phase one, they will go, Oh, we're wizards, but I was enjoying this game of uh, we're ordinary suburban uh, schlubs, uh, which goes back to a comment I got during a, a, a mage scenario that I uh, wrote at one point. And so <laughs> you want it to feel cooler, and it's a lot harder to do that in the participatory realm of role-playing where one person might be really attached to the uh, the fake-out, and they might be disappointed, and everybody else is happy to be wizards, or, you know, you, you have... You control more of the levers in, you know, a novel or in other forms of, of passive entertainment when you do that sort of uh, genre shift. So it's not so easy to emulate those uh, curveballs in in other ways. And so you can sort of hope that everybody finds the new thing uh, more fun, but you don't. I think mostly want to find out that it's the new thing is terrible, right? Yeah. Unless the new thing is zombies attacking you. And that's sort of the big exception here. I think people are ready for the shift, the from dusk till dawn style shift into horror. People are Mm -hmm. take that in stride. And that's, you know, a long running trick. But, you know, if, if you ran the matrix for people and they're doing all of this Kung Fu and stuff, and then suddenly you find yourself in, in the glop realm where everybody's plugged into the machines and grimy and dirty people, who uh, were happy to go on that journey in the Matrix might be very unhappy to have their super cool Kung Fu characters uh, suddenly cold and shivering with goo on them. Yeah, and especially in a in a world where the stakes and the decisions in the glop realm are the important ones and the Kung Fu is meant to be the distraction, I, I think players would... Uh, would very much object to that, you know, that no, the, you know, you can come through all day, but it's irrelevant. This is the real thing. And if you run into a, an electric octopus, you'll all just die. Uh, you have like nine hit points. Sorry. I think that is another question is that some genres, uh, and I think this gets to the second part of Terry's question. Some genres require some mechanical support down to how many hit points do you have? Can you do magic? Can you do Kung Fu? All these other, you know, how many skill slots does your character have? You know, what are your options mechanically? And those, again, I think when you especially talk about shifts into and out of power fantasy genre, you run into problems. Uh, romance, you can imagine, yeah, sure, Superman and Wonder Woman can get it on. That's great. You know, good for them. It's, you know, sexy superheroes. We love it. You know, the Legion of Superheroes was literally all about that. But how much, you know, do you want to see Clark Kent and Diana Prince, you know, fumble around the U.N.? Uh, not using their powers to do anything. 
considerably less, I would imagine, right? Right. And I, I think you were heading toward the more obvious practical problem, which is you can't preserve the surprise and upshift into a more complicated system that requires more character <laughs> generation. Because, you know, I think everyone, including all the uh, Hero System fans, are going to balk if they're you're two-thirds of the way through first scenario, and it's like, now generate your champion's characters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, no, we're just going to eat this kimchi and leave. I'm going to uh, murder you, and, yeah. Right, so I would think in general, you need a system that is either designed to encompass all of the things that you want to do. So, you know, you mentioned swashbucklers. You you need your, if it's going to be romance for a while and then swords, make sure that people have their romance and their swords abilities already on their character sheets. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, pick a game where the uh, shifting is baked in, whether it's Feng Shui, which of course emulates, uh, or at least refers to all of these different tones uh, and uh, has, you know, silly uh, comedy and but characters seriously die and or you know something like like torg which very literally mindedly uh, went about uh, you know establishing the fact that you could uh, hop from one genre to another even you know was baked into the the uh, imaginary metaphysics of that setting yeah the other possible way out is that sometimes and i think this does require trust at the table you can do Genre shifts, but with different characters in the same universe. So something that I've done at one point, I had a a game where the player characters were all immortal sort of super level characters. And in one session, I passed out the sheets uh, for little kids. And we ran a little Edwardian children's fantasy with the children of them and their, you know, various, you know, dependent NPCs. You know, in in the same spirit as the the prisoner episode, the girl who was deaf, where suddenly you're watching it and it's a wacky Avengers style spy show, and it's because uh, number six is telling a story to the kids in kindergarten. So you can do a one off thing like that if you've pre prepped the characters. They sit down, you pass the sheets out. I think players generally have a degree of of charity and exploration mindedness to them, and so as long as they're you know. You know, you're not harming their super robot somewhere. They're happy to play the the little kid character for a session or long enough to get the uh, the quality of the tone shifting. And again, that that game that I talk about was deliberately another genre shifter in that every session was meant to take place or every adventure because some of them ran more than one session it was meant to take place within a different genre. And the notion was to sort of planetary style recapitulate the changes in uh, Western entertainment genre down to the modern era. So we had a Western and we had a Jules Verne voyage extraordinaire and we had a a melodrama and and we went through a bunch of different sorts of genres. And so genre shifting again was, was part of the expectation, but you know, changing their actual character and viewpoint that was kind of new and, and fun. I mean, it could have been, you know, strange and bad, but it was not, it turned out great. Right. So I think there's, there's two opposite ways to do this. One is, in a campaign where you say there's going to be a uh, tone and genre curveballs, so be prepared to run with it. And I think putting it that way in that, in that sort of, uh, you can do this. It's an, an achievement to switch genres is very useful player expectation psychology. Mm-hmm. Or the other end of that is, uh, in a con run, I think people are much more expecting that a surprise might happen. They're yeah. expecting pre gens and, 
they're not that attacking, right? They're only with these characters for three to four hours. So in that one, you could just, you know, go for an hour and then pull out the champions character sheets and, uh, hope everybody knows champions. So even then <laughs> you want to be a little careful with the, you know, the, the tech requirements that you're going to saddle people with because you're going to strip those down a lot of times in a convention run anyhow. So con run is a surprise uh, campaign is uh, expectations management. And I think uh, that seems like a sum up, which means it's time for us to uh, see what other hut awaits us on the other side of this cloudy cloud bank with a commercial in the middle of it. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. The complicated uh, scrolly document that you had to sign in order to check out your government-issue flintlock tells us that we're once more in the Tradecraft Hut. But it's an old-timey Tradecraft Hut because this time around, Ken, we're looking at the career of Thomas Miller Beach, uh, who infiltrated the Fenians in 1867. And the Canadian listeners will be perking up at the uh, date of 1867, and the word Fenians, uh, you learn about the Fenians. I think, uh, I think I learned about the Fenians in grade five history. And it's something that every Canadian learns. And then almost every Canadian forgets because they're a weird little footnote in history that doesn't really continue on into the present day. But it's like, yep. oh yeah, remember when Irish terrorists were attacking us from the United States? And that's why we, partly why we formed into a confederation because we were worried about that and we thought it was going to be a whole big, uh, invasion from America. Well, of course we don't remember that. We did, we weren't there then. We just re- heard about it for a day in grade five. Fenians, Ken. You're very Anything excited about, we need the to know about them. There's a lot you need to know about them. First of all, we should know that the Fenians are a generic name, although there was also a group called the Fenian Brotherhood, but like all political groups in the 19th and all centuries, they split and renamed themselves and they had a legitimist wing and an armed wing. And so there was all kind of different versions, but by and large, the Fenian Brotherhood 
was the group of heroic Irishmen and Irish women who fought against the hated British and the occupation, the unjust occupation of Ireland. So that is the, that's the story. They begin in the 1850s, uh, although obviously Irish resistance, you know, even within the century goes back to Wolf Tone. But the Fenian Brotherhood founds itself in Ireland and America basically in the 1850s and begins political action in the person of uh, the great Charles Stuart Parnell and let's say extra political action in the person of any number of fun terrorists. So our story in Ray Thomas Miller Beach does not begin in Ireland. It begins in Colchester in England, where he is born in 1841. He is apprenticed to a draper, which was probably even more boring in the 1850s than it would be now. He emigrates to the U.S. to get out of being a draper and joins up with the Union in the Civil War. Uh, which tells you how little fun being a draper in Colchester must have been. Right. Well, it was sort of the time when you got off the boat and got handed a uniform and what? Uh, what? And he took the name Henri Le Caron as his name. He, he didn't want to be called Thomas Miller Beach for whatever reason. He wanted to swash some buckles. Sounds exactly. Like. And uh, he switched from the infantry into the cavalry and did indeed swash a number of buckles, including the buckles of... Uh, a woman named Nanny Melville, who was the daughter of an Irish planter who had emigrated from Ireland to America, become a planter in Virginia. He was not pro-Confederacy, and so his family hid Henri Le Caron from the Confederates. And so out of happiness and, you know, propinquity, no doubt, he and Nanny Melville marry. So he is beginning to be wired into Irish-American culture at that point, and in 1865, he's demobilized in the city of Nashville, Tennessee, where he meets a guy named John O'Neill. John O'Neill is a member of the Fenian Brotherhood, and he's talking to Henri Le Caron, his friend, who is married to a lovely Irish lass. And he says, oh, that's odd that a French guy is married to a lovely Irish lass. And Le Caron says, oh, well, that's because my mom was Irish, and I've always loved and admired the Irish. And so he becomes a member of the Fenian Brotherhood, just as easy as that. And O'Neill says, look, this is great fun, but I'm going to go help out with the invasion of Canada. So you, you know, uh, see around, catch on the flip side. Uh, O'Neill goes off to Buffalo. And uh, because the other guy in charge of the invasion doesn't show up, O'Neill becomes in charge of it. Meanwhile, our boy uh, Thomas Miller Beach has written a letter to his dad. Guess what? You'll never guess who I just met. I met the leader of the Fenians in America. His name John O'Neill. He's invading Canada, I guess, right about now. And so his dad tells his MP for Colchester, who tells the Home Secretary, and the Home Secretary says, you've got a guy who's next to the leader of the Fenian Brotherhood? Maybe he should come and meet me. And so, sure enough, Lecaron travels to London. He meets Robert Anderson, who is the chief of the anti-Fenian domestic intelligence group that will become the special branch in about 20 years. And he gets paid 2,000 pounds to cozy up to the Fenians and uh, start informing on them. So he begins his career as a Fenian informant in 1867, as you say. O'Neill becomes Fenian Brotherhood president in 1868, because although his invasion ended in disaster when it turned out the British knew he was coming, somehow, he was still the guy who showed up. So he gets brought in as Fenian Brotherhood president, and he then recruits Le Caron to run the military wing of the American Fenian Brotherhood. Le Caron, at this point, is in Chicago. He is working for the medical district of Chicago and running a shell Fenian group 
in Lockport, which is nearby Chicago. It's a canal city a little uh, farther south. It's a port of locks, right. so to speak. It's on the canal. And so whenever they get any documents from Fenian headquarters, he makes sure to copy them and send them on to Robert Anderson. So LeCaron says, oh, I'd love to run your military organization. And he says, I'm going to go scout out the land in Canada. I'll be right back. Yes. And by this time, it's it's past 1867. So there is a Canada. There the is Confederation a Canada. has occurred. And he goes up. And uh, sure enough, because as you say, there is now a Dominion of Canada. There is now a Dominion police run by a guy named Gilbert McKicken. He was the spy master in the West during the Civil War to prevent people used to go and, and borrow Canadians for their war. Uh, it was called crimping, and he sort of ran the anti-crimper yes. unit out there. There's a whole theme of, of uh, stuff going on here where Canada's like, leave us out of this. Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't want to be in your war. We don't see why the Irish are invading us. This <laughs> seems like a bank shot. Leave us out of this. Well, anyways, Gilbert McKicken uh, then becomes Anderson's handler as well, pays him some money, and sure enough... That's helpful because when he gets back to America, O'Neill is in trouble for embezzling from the Fenians. And LeCaron says, oh, don't worry. I can loan you money to cover up that uh, defalcation. And so he does. And so uh, O'Neill says, you know what? I'm going to make you the assistant adjutant general for the invasion. So you get all the plans and it's your job to make sure that everyone is armed for this massive invasion of Quebec that we're going to have. And Quebec is especially leave us out of this. <laughs> yes, right. So once more, uh, as if by a miracle, the British authorities all know about the invasion and they stop it dead. Caron miraculously escapes the hands of the Canadian police, meaning that he keeps saying Gilbert McKicken until he gets a meeting and then McKicken sneaks him out of Ottawa in a different way. Uh, he returns to Detroit. Here's about the 1871 attempt by the Fenians to uh, hook up with uh, Louis Riel, the uh, rebel out in Manitoba, informs on that. And of course, therefore, Riel does not get any American Fenian support. And he has to get hung by the Canadians for his uh, temerity of attempting to separate Manitoba or something. Anyways, despite three out of three invasions having gone horribly wrong with Henri Le Caron attached or connected to them, he then becomes a uh, official in the Clan Nagale, which is the American successor to the Fenian Brotherhood, and also works for the Land League, which is the sort of legal political side of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which is the IRA you know, in the 19th century. And so he basically acts as the person who, when the land league wants the Americans to do something, probably send money. He asks, you know, in the name of the land league. And when the Americans want the land league to do something, uh, namely get off their duff and start blowing up the British, he asks that. So he becomes sort of the fixer middleman for this arrangement, joins the radical triangle faction of Clan Nagel, which is all about the dynamiting the hated British. Right, because and, if, if you're a spy, you, you want yeah. to get into the violent wing. That's exactly. the whole point. He provides uh, plenty of documents to Anderson, copies of all the official Clan Nagel information, goes right to the home office, um, betrays 25 of his comrades to uh, hanging, is tasked to carry messages to the French wing of the IRB, uh, which he does in 1881, where he meets uh, in 1881 on that trip. He meets Parnell, the great Parnell, continues to do that basically until he runs for Congress in America in 1886 and loses, at which point, I guess he believes maybe things are getting a little too hot for him, or maybe he just so doesn't want to- is he running for Congress all 
as part of the deep cover operation is, I is Canada trying to put a, a congressman in uh, an American Congress? I think he's trying to do it in a way to sort of my sense is that he's trying to get out at this point that, you know, even the uh, Fenians cannot be so incompetent as to not notice how many of their papers keep going wrong right after they're handed to Henri Le Caron. So I feel like he's he tries to run for Congress to sort of insulate himself from so from payback. This is a new gig that he's looking for. Right. Because uh, this is right around the time where people who are being looked at as informers, especially in Chicago, are getting killed by the uh, uh, Fenians because they're like, someone's talking and maybe it's you, Dr. Cronin, and they stab him and put him in a canal. And so this may be the point where he says, I don't want to be stabbed and put in a canal. That sounds terrible. I'd rather be in Congress. But he it's loses. inconvenient that, that your headquarters and your lockboard, it's too near the canal. You can get stabbed and thrown in it. It's very inconvenient. So he returns to the UK in 1888, where he is drawn into the Parnell Commission because a forged bunch of letters from Parnell, supposedly written to the heads of the Clan Nagale and the IRB, say, good for you murdering all those Britishers. That's the kind of spirit I like. Signed, the noble Parnell. And uh, Parnell says, first of all, I just signed myself Parnell. That's an obvious forgery. <laughs> and indeed, it was an obvious forgery. It's demonstrated to be one. But the British government, although they can't nail Parnell, make sure to nail everyone he's ever met in the commission hearing. So the commission becomes a bigger, you know, interrogation of the whole Fenian action. Caron is the star witness at the trial, holds up under cross-examination because he's got kind of a bulletproof story. Uh, yeah, I've got all the letters. Here they are. And then realizes that being a, uh, a a double agent in Britain is, if anything, less safe than being a double agent in Illinois. He has uh, security basically for the rest of his life, publishes a memoir called 25 Years in the Secret Service in 1892, and then dies of cancer, not of being stabbed in a canal, in 1894. And that is the end of Thomas Miller Beach, a.k.a. Henri Le Caron. Have you read the memoir? I've not read the memoir. I've read uh, a biography of him that is full of this sort of excitement, just in, you know, even more detail. You know, my uh, my stomach for 19th century memoirs is roughly, I think, your stomach for 19th century fiction, right. by and large. You know, unless you're, you know, uh, Patterson, you know, hunting the ghost in the darkness, I, I don't really care about your life. Yes, I, I, I thought there was a pretty good shot that it was, uh, the answer is not going to be, it's surprisingly readable for the modern no. reader. No. So, gaming applications. The whole, a historic undercover agent, it seems really hard to fit into your typical gaming framework. It's almost like uh, someone would want to use the open license to create an extremely specialized, dedicated one-to-one campaign where you are undercover uh, with the Fenians. I, I think that's really the only way I can think of to do it. Well, I mean, the other possibility, I mean, and I see two possibilities. You could be running a urban horror, urban fantasy, unknown armies type game. And if you ran it in Chicago in the 1880s, or you ran it in, you know, the 1870s, there would be a Fenian movement within your city. And you could have Le Caron as an NPC who shows up and he's like this, you know, basically he's clearly the sole competent Fenian. He's the only person who's capable of, you know, because dotting the eyes, making payroll, <laughs> etc. And so his overt goal is yes. to undermine the, the Fenian. Well, he's using his old draping skills, no doubt. Yeah, exactly. But 
But, um, but like her own could be an NPC in, in that sort of campaign. And then you have the sort of the shadowy Fenians who are stabbing double agents and whatnot. Yeah. Someone stabbed in a canal and it initially seems to be the Fenians, but it turns out to be wizards. Exactly. Or the Fenians are attempting to find and wake up the old druid Irish magic in the way that William Butler Yeats literally was doing about 20 years down the road from this in order to magically overthrow Canada because the part where you march in with guns doesn't seem to be working. So, you could have, you know, the Fenian plot as a big magical, you know, uh, undergirding to your campaign. And you could be playing either the home office Sherlock Holmes hated British side fighting the hated the, 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 the Fenians. Or you could be playing the heroic Fenians who want to free Ireland. And sure, if Canada gets magically transformed, that's just the price you got to pay. Well, I think the thing is what happens is they find the wooden druid sword. They don't know it's wooden to begin with, and then they go and they fight the magic beaver, and then they discover why it's a problem. Right, yes, why sword. he's a magic beaver, and that will and, kind of ruin And the magic beaver says, leave us out of this! Leave us out of this! Oh, that's a delicious shillelagh! Chomp, 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 yeah. chomp. Uh, and on that callback, I think it's time for us to head to another hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Shield this podcast from Fenian holdouts by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Eric Saltwell, Ariel Celeste, Jeffrey Pittman, Linda, and Mike Schiffer, and Peter Nix. The non-Euclidean angles, the mysterious violet glow, the sound of Demi-humans scuttering about the wainscoting welcome us into that creepiest of huts, the Mythos Hut. And in the Mythos Hut, our, our brand new yet somehow timeless and primordial hut, uh, we are continuing the creation of our very own Mythos Deity. And uh, previously, we talked about what the sort of qualia are for being a Mythos Deity. And now we're looking at the ranks of the Mythos Deities and saying, is there an opening? Help wanted? Yes. What, what's been left out that needs right. us to, to fill it with another mythos deity? And, and remember, the last guy who answered this was August Durleth, and he got half of his answers correct in that if Aqua uh, was a pretty great mythos deity, and Cthulhu so far, let us say, has not yet risen to the occasion. Okay. Well, if Ugalanak had a head, he'd be side-eyeing you, and right. so would okay, Ramsey Campbell. Yeah, he'd side-eyeing me with his hands 
held sideways. Yes. Like a gangster hand. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Ramsey Campbell did notice that uh, Lovecraft did not have a mythos deity about disgusting sex, which is <laughs> wild, but there we are. Pretty obvious thing for Lovecraft to leave out. You, you both get why he left it out, and you get why it needed to be there. Right. So, but, but, but Ramsey Campbell took the obvious answer with you all in act. Right, yes. So uh, when you can't use the elements, which Durleth has uh, bogarted, and you can't use disgusting sex, which Ramsey Campbell was way ahead of us on, what is left, Robin? What do we got? Okay, well, uh, let's let's go down the list. I have a the list of all of the deities covered in Trail of Cthulhu, and uh, uh, we have some also rands here. And mm-hmm. and when you're trying to come up with a new mythos deity, you're not you're not competing. You know, it, being just as good as Quachel Utaus, you know, that's that's the lowest bar, right? We want somebody who can stand up and and have uh, cool uses for him, like like the. The heavy hitter. So first of all, Clark Ashton Smith says nothing but good things about you. I can't believe that you would denigrate Quachel Utaus that way. But I feel like if you can, if you can make a, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree. I I don't think that we need to come up with the second coming of Azathoth uh, or Sathagwa. I feel like if you can get a good, solid niche deity like Quachel Utaus, you're still doing a great job. So that's, that's me pushing back. Well, then let, let's go at it the, the other way then. Let's, let's look at the, uh, at the second stringers and see if we can emulate them. So, uh, Quachel Utas, remind people who he is. And, uh, he's the, the sort of the, the little uh, mummy creature who is, you know, so important to God that he winds up in a museum. Yeah. Well, no, Rad and Tigoth winds up in a museum. He's Uh-oh. not even in the list. That's how third rate he is. Quachel Utas is, uh, the little mummy God who embodies entropy and, uh, and time passages. He's the guy who you would try to make yourself immortal with. And it turns out in all uh, mythos fiction, that's the worst idea you could ever possibly have because he shows up and says, great, you've lived your whole lifespan, but because relativity, it's done now. Now you're a powdery mummy like me. Watch Lutaus is great. I, I love him. Okay. Entropy is taken up. Yep. Can't use entropy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shagnar Foggen. Shagnar Foggen is another time god. He is solidified time. Uh, I think that uh, he is... Sort of your, um, uh, the other half, if Quachel Utaus is, uh, is entropy, Chognar Fallen is stasis or paralysis, similar to Gatnathoa, who Lovecraft writes after reading Frank Balknop Long's Chognar Fawn, I should point out. So, Gatanathoa is basically Cthulhu, but with paralysis, and Chognar Fawn, I think, already had stasis pretty covered. Gatnathoa, quite frankly, is, uh, well, I mean, he's meant to be an ran because it's, out of the eons, the story that he's from is Lovecraft sort of redoing Call of Cthulhu, and he needs a thing that isn't Cthulhu to be the center of it. Uh, Daloth. Daloth is a Ramsey Campbell entity that is about, it, it seems to me to be about the substrate of invisible math. It's, it sort of reifies the notion of Lovecraft that if you understand reality, you go mad. Daloth is a geometrical shape that if you see him or it, you are destroyed by it. So That's also I feel pretty like slick. Ram- Ramsey Campbell, he's got he's two for two here. Campbell Campbell is the bomb. I mean, all praise and love to Ramsey yes, Campbell. We must I copy him as we copy Lovecraft. Right, yeah. Uh Gal Garoth. What's up with him? That is straight up Robert E. Howard coming up with a name that sounded cool. He wound up using that a couple of different times, sort of different ways. Maybe it's a toad, maybe it's a bird. It lives maybe on an island. It's sort of creepy and weird. Maybe it's connected to a gem. Howard, I think gets the job of the mythos on the other side of the of the fence which is to be poetic to be 
something that seems to be larger and and weirder than you can describe even in a beloved uh, podcast. And so Golgoroth is really just there because his name sounds creepy, but his job is, I think, to the extent he has a common job in the Howard uh, mythos, he acts sort of as a guardian. He's he's sitting there and he's watching uh, when you take the gem or you get to the island or whatever awful thing happens, Golgoroth is, is there. So I think, again, he's got that bird quality to him of, you know, the, the, the raven or the crow that sits there and, you know, goes, ah, and you say, well, that's, this is not going to turn out well for this movie. Right. Uh, we have a couple of them that their concept is they are the god of inhuman species. So mm-hmm. we have your Dagon and we have your Mardigian, who are the gods of the deep ones and the uh, ghouls. So uh, if we wanted to do that thing where you just literally copy the way something else is uh, and add another obvious thing, we could, you know, create the god of the Migo. But we don't want to do that. That's and like, the Migo already worship uh, near Alethotep. They would be shocked, shocked, I tell you. Although the notion of heretical Migo out there worshiping their own great old one, that w- that would be kind of a fun story element. It would be, you know, cool, actually, to have, you know, a, a schism among one of the uh, inhuman races. And that, that might be fun in its own way to do, you know, what, you know, who would uh, heretics want to worship instead of uh, Dagon or... And we have a Yig, of course, who would be the patron of the serpent folk. Is is there a major race of entities that is even missing a god at this point? Well, the Chthonians have Shadamel. I don't think that the Bowls have a god, but they're not usually a major race. They're more like Shagas. They're a, a horrible thing that happens than a a species with its own speciesy agenda. I feel like there's a possibility that the great race of Yith should have a god. They're a real race. They're there. But they don't worship anything. Yeah, they're more sciencey. They're sciencey atheists like yeah. Lovecraft. So again, I feel like, you know, they lived for a hundred million years just in the cone being life, or actually 300 million years in the cone being life. They surely must have had mythos cults because they're going around collecting the Pnecotic manuscripts, right? So again, you could have a Dagon, a Mordigian, or whatever, that is either the primordial god worshipped by the cone beings before the Yithians took them over, or that was a black entity on Yith that was worshipped, you know, way back on, you know, their ancient, ancient, ancient star that has followed them to Earth to be worshipped and be reified here. I feel like, you know, the great race of Yith, um, being that they are, as uh, Lovecraft calls them, fascistic socialists, you know, surely they need their own Ananerba, right? Their own creepy magic weirdos that everyone in the, you know, Yithian Wehrmacht is like, uh, I don't know about that guy. <laughs> uh, well, I think we're sort of backing our way into a concept here then, which a concept I was initially poo-pooing. So let's, let's hold on. <laughs> it. But it does strike me as interesting that they, you know, the since the Yithians are sciencey now, maybe they've, you know, imprisoned. Uh, this god, whatever it is, and that whatever, you know, time period that the thing, you know, its dark adherents are uh, trying to free it. So that, uh, uh, you know, they have to suck you into breaking the science cage. And they've, and they've imprisoned it, you know, e- even either down with all the flying polyps or their god, the dark god that they hate and fear takes the shape of a flying polyp in the same way that, you know, Satan appears as a goat or that Yig appears as a, as a serpent, especially to people who don't like snakes. So you would have a, a notion that, you know, this God is the, is the flying polyp. He is formless. He has the power of, of wind and, and things like that, that they fear and is 
able to sort of oil around their scienciness that he is the god of, of of penetrating boundaries and that they can travel through time but he's always there because he's eternal right that he uh, transcends time in sort of a third way that he's not Quachalotos, he's not entropy he's not chagnar fawn he's not stasis he is you know the chaos that the big bang came out of he's in a way he's azathoth he could be like a a face or a shard of azathoth okay so Right. So, so once you say, in a way, he's Azathoth. Yeah. <laughs> we know that he's stepping on Azathoth's formless uh, form. So let's let's run through the rest of the the heavy hitters to make sure that this deity that we're moving towards doesn't rip off any of their things. So I think there's something we can do with that. Uh, the idea of persistence, but it can't be persistent and eternal the way Azathoth is. So uh, Cthulhu, again, as we said last week, is kind of the hardest to pin down of all of them. And then he's sort of the granddaddy who kicks it all off. And uh, his, his vibe is the, the hardest to pin down. So it's the hardest to avoid copying. Right. Yeah. And again, you've got it. We, we've just come up with a, a God who's imprisoned. Well, there we are. We just did Cthulhu. Good for us. <laughs> okay. So yeah. our imprisoned God out the window, disqualified. That's why we're doing this whole segment. Mm-hmm. Haster uh, in the Durlethian version is, is not the, Sinister meme that you find in uh, my version of the King in Yellow, at least. What is he doing other than being a grub? Haster, I think, in the Derlethian conception, Haster is meant to be a fellow elemental of the air, I think, connected to Cthulhu, but not of Cthulhu. So in, in alchemical terms, he would be moist air as opposed to dry air, which is a thakwa. And Haster is... In a way, I think the personal aspect of Cthulhu to Durleth, Durleth's Cthulhu is much more cosmic and transcendent, actually, than Lovecraft's. While he gives plenty of, you know, you know, uh, rote praise to Cthulhu, his wizards and sorcerers often appeal to Haster in a way. And, the, you know, the whole story of the return of Haster is about a guy who's, you know, takes the bargain of Haster and gets wizard powers, but unfortunately turns into a giant slug, just like Haster is. So I feel like, Durleth himself is sort of taking the personal aspect of Haster that uh, he gets out of Chambers and applying it uh, to Cthulhu. So, in a way, Haster is a fractal version of Cthulhu or a damp version of Ithaqua. So, even Durleth is, again, I, I'm, my argument is he did one successful god and all the rest sort of don't work. And I think Haster, in the Durlethian way, doesn't doesn't really work that well. Shabnagurath is corrupt growth. Mm-hmm. Pretty clear. That's, uh, you know... Uh, she's cancer. Mm-hmm. Thagua uh, is uh, sort of sly, indolent, slothful decadence, and uh, Yogsathoth is the uh, is the gateway. The idea that uh, there's more than one reality, and you don't want to be in any of the other ones, and is sort of most of all symbolizes that reality break that comes when you uh, consider the the correlation of the contents and understanding. What's really out there? Yeah, yeah. To the extent that Yog Sothoth embodies anything, I think he embodies cosmicism itself. The notion that there is a larger universe, that there is a bigger sphere, that we are tiny and, and unimportant. And I think Yog Sothoth, you know, the apprehending of him is what you know lets you become a, a really powerful wizard when it happens to Randolph Carter. But more often, it just you know gets you pregnant with one of his spawn, right? And seeds awfulness into the universe the way that uh, Joseph Kerwin was using Yogg-Sothoth to power all of his hideous uh, zombie revenants and whatnot. Right. So as you point out, uh, being imprisoned is part of uh, Cthulhu shtick. We can't do that. 
But do we have on this list a God who uh, represents the forgotten, the forbidden thought, the uh, intellectual taboo? Again, Cthulhu is big and large, and Sathagwa also sort of plays that role a little bit. But in terms of specifically, I feel like if it isn't Daloth or Yogg-Sothoth, it isn't either of them. Uh, Because both of them have the shade of it. Daloth is the truth you can't comprehend, and Yogg-Sothoth is kind of the notion that there are truths you can't comprehend. But the uh, forbidden thought or the taboo thought, if it's not a sexy taboo thought, then it's uh, not Yagalanek. And there's plenty of non-sexy taboos out there. Uh, So the forbidden or forgotten thought is going to be our concept for Mm -hmm. our deity next week. Uh, We will decide then whether to continue to play with the idea of tying in the Yithians. Mm -hmm. So we've we've got, we found our missing slot just in time to end the segment. (laughs) But we'll be back next week and uh, start to build out a Cthulhu deity based around that concept. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kaligati, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is a conveyance Ken's superiors at Time Incorporated used to send it back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. And this time around... Uh, beloved Patreon backer Monster Talk introduces a question that I am also going to have lots of thoughts and feelings about <laughs> because it, it's about uh, literature and film. It is to wit, how do we get a timeline where David Lean shoots Nostromo based on the Joseph Conrad novel? And what is it like? And so I think I know how I would go about this. And uh, I'm not sure I would. So <laughs> hurtful. <laughs> well, let me explain why. Yeah. Begin with the premise rejection, as we always do. Well, very often we contemplate whether to change the timeline. And I'm not saying this film should not exist. But when we go back all the way back to 1990, I'm going to look for some stuff that I lost while I was there in order to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So Nostromo by Joseph Comrad is one of his longer novels. If you've just read Heart of Darkness, this one's longer than that by a considerable yard. And 
when you think of why it would be hard to turn into film, very briefly, it's the story of a revolution and a counter-revolution in a fictional, somewhat Peruvian-seeming Latin American uh, country where, in order to defend their interests, the uh, upper classes of this town that is based around a recently revived silver mine get together to repel the uh, rapacious forces who, under the banner of liberalism, want to get a lot of money and own a silver mine. And you could read it as a political thriller, and uh, you keep wanting it as a reader to turn into a political thriller. And whenever your desire seems to be satisfied, Conrad slaps you down uh, yeah. because this is an anti-thriller uh, that is deliberately trying to subvert the whole idea of the great man. And the title character, Nostromo, you may be under the impression that a book called Nostromo will introduce Nostromo fairly early on and make him the protagonist. He does not. <laughs> you, you are a good 30% of the way through before he really fully comes on stage. And you go, oh, finally, after Conrad introducing character after character after character, giving back, going back, giving their whole biography and their whole different idiosyncratic point of view and set of interests that will play into this whole story. Now, finally, he's on stage. Nope, we're going to forget about him for another 20% of the novel. And then once you do finally, after you've seen him as sort of a great, man who's the indispensable person who is able to marshal all the forces in this town, the sort of heroic figure that everyone can rally behind. When you do finally get inside his head, you find out that he's just as weird and idiosyncratic and in this case, you know, insecure and peculiar as anybody else. And yeah. then when you get further into the novel, you go, here's finally where all the action begins. Then it jumps way ahead in time to tell you how everything turned out. And then it jumps back to tell you this other bit of the story. So in our timeline, originally, Lean was on the outs with his usual latter-day screenwriter collaborator, the playwright Robert Bolt, who wrote Man for All Seasons and many of Lean's great epics, including, of course, Lawrence of Arabia. And so he then gets Christopher Hampton involved. Uh, Hampton, at this point, he's a, been a playwright for many years, like Bolt, and he's had a big screenwriting success with the ad adaptation of his play, which is an adaptation of Chodor Lestelaklos' Dangerous Liaisons. And in the subsequent years, he got on to still have a quite thriving screenwriting career. He wrote Tonement, A Dangerous Method, the recent Anthony Hopkins film, The Father, uh, not to be confused with the older Anthony Hopkins film, The Good Father, which he also wrote. <laughs> and he finally did get to write a Conrad adaptation with The Secret Agent. But Lean tells him to faithfully adapt in Nostromo. The one thing you should not do. <laughs> it, it is so uncinematic and unfilmic. If you make it filmic, though, you turn it into the thing that Conrad is trying to make sure that it is not. It's not. Right, so yeah. initially, I thought, Ken, what you would do was go back in time and settle his dispute with Robert Bolt, who would then have the authority with him to say, don't faithfully adapt Nostromo. We got to right. do it this way or or that other way or something like this, because the other thing about Lean and the reason is that he is one of these collaborators who can't tell you what they want. He can just tell you to do it over. And he keeps telling poor Christopher Hampton to mm -hmm. do it over and do it over and do it over. And uh, just like William Wyler would do the same thing with yeah. his actors. Well, I can't tell you what I want, but keep doing it until you do it. 
So my main mission in this is to somehow rescue poor Christopher Hampton from wasting all of his time. <laughs> from from spending a year not writing Nostromo as it happens. Okay. Um, that's I'm not saying don't do that. There's many reasons to go back in time and hang out with Hollywood people, or so I explain on my expense sheets. My sort of goal was that the the very delicate edifice of Hollywood deal making gets us to a point where we have Marlon Brando, Paul Schofield, Peter O'Toole, Isabella Rossellini, Christopher Lambert, and Dennis Quaid all attached. They're on board. They're ready. Everything's set. Cameras are ready to go in And did you find uh, a Spain. list of, of what parts they were supposed to play? I, I did not. Um, but I, I'm looking yeah. at this list and I'm going, oh no, they're going to miscast Dennis Quaid as the mine owner. And I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's the only one on that list who would, right. who would be that. So what I, what my goal was is just to get that vision. And because as you mentioned, Robert Bolt does come on and rewrite poor Christopher Hampton's script at the end. Right. And which which buys me, enough time for Lean to shoot the film before the end of his life. Right. Yeah. And so my goal is, uh, because, uh, it was going to be uh, produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh, Spielberg, of course, big, huge fan of Lean, had got cred with Lean by being a big uh, engine in the re restoration of Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, lost uh, putting, cred with Lean by suggesting he might have some notes on this. <laughs> exactly. And that was the problem was that Spielberg approaches Lean as a partner as opposed to as an acolyte, which is never the way to go with uh, David Lean. And so Lean and Spielberg, you know, run into loggerheads early. And rather than fight with his idol, Spielberg says, oh, you know what? I'm busy making, I don't know, Jurassic Park. Let's say that's what I'm busy doing. And he bamfs off and he turns it over to another guy named Serge Silberman, who was the guy who had produced uh, Ron with Kurosawa. And you get the idea. He's like, okay, legendary epic director, legendary epic director had a producer. This should be no problem. But of course, Serge Silberman also is a guy who has notes who has ideas and Silverman, unlike Spielberg digs his heels in and drags the process out for almost a year and a half, 18 months of shouting at David lean completely ineffectually, of course. And so Silverman winds up basically sucking all the oxygen out of the project while David lean is as noted dying. So my alteration is to not give it to a producer who has an ego, but to give it to Jerry Molin, who is sort of the lepidus of the Amblin Entertainment uh, trifecta. And so all Jerry Molin has is a vaguely right-wing sensibility, which is perfect for Joseph Conrad, and who is also a competent producer. He gets... He gets everyone paid and on set on time, but he does not seem to have uh, a sort of an, an artistic sensibility in the way that Silverman and Spielberg do. So my notion is if what you want is a guy who will just sign checks and say, man, that's brilliant, David Lean. I feel like Jerry Mullen is your guy. And so Mullen doesn't interfere, doesn't get Lean's backup. Lean gets production underway in 1990, which means it's ahead of his death. The Sheltering Sky, uh, Warner Brothers is delighted to not put in December because it is going to bomb. So they bounce the Sheltering Sky out of its slot, put Lean's Nostromo in in December 1990, and it beats Dances with Wolves for Best Picture, which is a happy ending all the way around, as far as I'm concerned. Better than having Dances. If, if something is going to beat Goodfellas, yeah. uh, let it be <laughs> Nostromo. a time-slipped version of Nostromo. So yeah. does Robert Bolt crack the problem of 
finding a narrative through line in Nostromo that does not disrupt the whole point of Nostromo. I mean, I have not read the script. It's on the internet. You can see it. It was the one that they all agreed to shoot, uh, which is about as good as you can get, I think. And it's Bolt and uh, Lean are the credited authors of it. I don't know, uh, because again, I did not read the entire script, uh, nor did I reread Nostromo for this piece. Right. And I've only just read Nostromo because it's the only way you can really talk about Nostromo <laughs> on a podcast <laughs> yeah. is to have immediately read it because <laughs> right. it is so complex. It, it, it is uh, jammed up. So again, am I going to sit here and say this is going to be the greatest, the, the truest adaptation of Nostromo ever? I'm sure it is not. Is it going to be the greatest adaptation of Nostromo? Obviously it is. So Bolt, you know, begins by saying, you know, be freer with it and pay more attention to Nostromo. That's like his literal first words coming out of the project. <laughs> Don't wait till hour history. two to have him show up. <laughs> yeah. And so I feel like that is the, that's the sort of a- approach that, that one needs. Don't you think? Yeah. And, and a few years, years later, there was a miniseries version, which I have not seen which has Albert Finney and Brian Dennehy in what must be a bit part and uh, uh, Colin Firth. Uh, and if you're going to do Nostromo, uh, it would be a miniseries. Um, I don't remember that having been a thing at the time, and <laughs> it's not currently on streaming now. Yeah. So again, if you want to read the script, it's up there. And my go- my thought, or I sensed that my goal was to get, you know, for better or for worse, David Lean's last vision onto the screen because you know, for God's sakes, the man was David Lean. Right. I thought briefly about interfering in the famously stupid idea that he had in 1970 after Ryan's daughter, he made a, a sort of a Robert Mitchum as a long-suffering henpecked Irish husband, terrific casting. Uh, he made a, a film called Ryan's Daughter that bombed terribly, and then he couldn't believe that his film had bombed, and so he invited all of the New York film critics to lunch at the Algonquin hotel to tell him what was wrong with his film, which first of all, I can't imagine doing that even as me, much less as David lean. (laughs) And so, you know, uh, this was the seventies, I'm sure there was drinking and people just like tore the crap out of his movie. I think Pauline kale gave him a lot of uh, notes. He didn't write, gave him a lot of static. And then, um, Richard, Richard Schickel literally says, how does the guy who made brief encounter make bullshit? like uh, Ryan's daughter. So that basically like destroyed Lean's confidence for the next decade. It it took him until passage to India really to come back as a filmmaker. And so part of my thought was, let's just slot something into that empty Lean space. But then we're making a whole different Nostromo because Lean doesn't even have the idea to write Nostromo or to do Nostromo until the early 80s because he's going around talking to film students instead of doing his job. And, uh, and someone says, you should make Nostromo. And he's like, that's a great idea. And then goes insane doing these cool storyboards and, uh, lots of great, he gets a lot of great visual ideas, I think, with the silver mine and, and some other stuff. And, and again, the storyboards, you can see them on the internet. So I didn't want to make Lean's 1970s Nostromo, which would also have been weird. I wanted to make the, the last Nostromo, the, the, the big one, but I did very seriously think about just showing up at that lunch and ruining it for everyone. And I feel like I'm capable of ruining the Algonquin round table. <laughs> well, at least the seventies version. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You would, you would be drunk under the table at the right, uh, yes. actual original, at the version. real one. Yeah. Robert Benchley alone would, would uh, lay me out. I feel right. So, well, okay. So, and I think, you know, even Marty Scorsese, would uh, be uh, philosophical about losing to David Lean instead of to uh, mm-hmm. uh, Kevin Costner. So 
Because Scorsese is another gigantic David Lean stan, as well he should be. Right. Yes. So, uh, yes, I guess that's that's the version of uh, of history we, we want to go with. So I, I withdraw my earlier thought about taking this out of the timeline. I think you've convinced me uh, that this is, uh, on, on balance, a, a victory, even if uh, the reviews are all, well, you just shouldn't try to adapt Nostromo. Yeah, maybe that's not, not the way to do it. But, you know, I feel like, you know, uh, as long as you can beat Kevin Costner... Something right is is happening in the world. Well, if I've ever heard an exit line, that's it. So we'll see you next week, folks. Stuff I mean, once again talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astrogel. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Lean into saving this podcast alongside <laughs> such epic backers as... Philip Masters. Andrew Cowie. Carrie Shutrick. Mark Galliotti. And Scott Jones. Where this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin with such cozy designs as excuse me while I nap this out on Twitter he's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D. Laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff